And now, a Breakthrough Basketball original podcast, The Jim Huber Show. After basketball, his dream is to become a rodeo clown. Jim Huber. Hey, everybody. Oh, it's hard work being this good. I was like, ow. <laughs> <laughs> he sounded like a, a big choo-choo train. Raising boys the Zeller way. Luke, Tyler, and Cody, and Stephen Laurie Zeller are guests today. Uh, chapter five, you had gotten all over Luke in about a three-hour car ride. You're, you're criticizing him, and he asked you a question. What did he say to you? He said, was there anything I did right today or this weekend? We're sitting at a, at a McDonald's in the car. In that moment, will live with me the rest of my life because I looked over at that then a sixth grader with a over right at a six foot frame, skinny, huge shoes, and just looked at him and, and he was he was devastated. And I realized that me as a father, I was trying to tell him all the things that he could improve on to try to make him a better basketball player. In all honesty, he just wanted to be a kid. And from that point on, I made a pact with myself that I would tell them one positive thing when they got done playing, and then I would wait for them to ask. And each of our kids have a different personality, so Cody and Luke would always ask on the way home, and I would be able to tell them the different things they needed to work on. Tyler would ask about five minutes before I went to bed, so he knew he only got about five minutes of it. Luke mentions in the book, he says, when he got to high school and college, he never felt pressure. I know I talked to Troy a lot, and it's tough. It's tough for parents to like sit there and allow the process to take place. What are some tips you can give the parents, maybe what they can do so they don't get caught up in it? Is there something that they can walk away from something? They can have an accountability partner? What would you suggest? I just recently finished an article that's going to be in Sports Spectrum magazine, who is the same group uh, that published our book. And, and this one is on, um, you know, in light of the fact that it's um, we're in the middle of basketball season right now. It's kind of how parents act at ball games, and if you've ever been in the stands at a game, and especially in the youth season, um, parents seem to take on yeah. a whole new personality sometimes. Last night yeah. I'm there, uh, Lori, and, and guys are coaching their kids from the stands, and, you know, there before the grace of God go I, because I did that. I was guilty. I, I made every mistake. I'm like Steve. Every mistake you could make, I made. I know. So true, isn't it? It's like, you know, you see your leaders in the community who are mm-hmm. great, smart, brilliant leaders, and they, at their kids' basketball games, Lunatics. they look like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for saying that. <laughs> it's awful. And I've been there, and I'm getting better, and, and uh, your book is already saving me headaches, so thank you, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> there was a point in our boys' career, and we've sat through, um, you know, countless games, but there was a point where I, I looked around at some of the other parents, some of the other moms, and, and, you know, like how they were behaving. And I just decided, I told myself, you know, there's nothing I'm going to do in the stands that is going to change the outcome of this game or what happens on the court. You know, if I'm yelling at a ref, it's never going to happen that the ref stops and says, oh, you know what, Mrs. Zeller thinks I should call that foul. I, I think change I'll call it. Yeah. You know, like, there's nothing I'm going to say. There's no yelling I'm going to do. 
Um, there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to change what's going on on the court other than make me look like um, an idiot. So, you know, it, it, it could be a second-grade ball game, and there's so many parents telling their kids, you know, to, you know, post up on the block or guard so-and-so that, you know, they can't even listen to their coaches because the kids are too busy looking in the stands at their parents. Right. That's that's one thing you talk about in the book that I can relate to is the performance-based love. Like, I think parents so much focus on, like, you're a great basketball player, and then children create their identities in what they do. Yeah, exactly. If If we let our children believe that we love them because they play basketball or they are... Um, you know, they excel at something, um, then someday when they don't get straight A's or they don't have a good basketball game, then kids will think that now my parents don't love me. And so if we base our love on, you know, that persona that, that it's based on their performance, then it's going to be very shallow. And kids are going to, um, you know, it's going to damage their self-confidence and, you know, what they think their worth is. So, we just need to let our kids know that we love them unconditionally. Jim brought in a stat that most kids quit organized sports well, by the time. I got time, that in the book, too. By the time they're 13 years old, 70% quit. Like 75%. And I ask them why. It's because I'm not having fun. And number two, the car ride home. Absolutely. It's a, uh, are you doing it for yourself? And Lori used to uh, make this comment. We had a, a basketball coach. I'm sitting at a... Uh, on the sidelines, Luke's out playing. Once again, him being our pioneer, he's out playing. And Luke comes over, and, and a coach just pointed out to him all these things he could do as far as correcting his shot. And I'm thinking, as he's telling me, I already told him all this. When he gets done, I said, Luke, that's what I've been telling you. And he walked away, and the old coach that was sitting beside me said, did you say that to your son for him or for you? And I've thought about that statement a lot because I definitely said it for me. It made me feel better. It built my ego up that, hey, I've already been telling you. And what difference does it make as long as they learn what you want them to learn? And that's when you really get to know that you're doing things for them rather than just for yourself. And don't, don't most parents, like they want them, like you talk about going from A to D, and skipping like B and C, they need to go through processes. You might talk to parents about that, allowing your child to go through the processes. Everything has a process, and uh, Lori and I now work with uh, kids. We do basketball training. We have a gym here in Washington that we do basketball training with, and and uh, Lori and I talk a lot about each individual kid because each individual kid goes through the processes in a different way. And it's so much fun when the light comes on, when they actually get to D and the light comes on, rather than trying to force them to get to that last step. And a great example is, is just shooting. Um, you know, the, the process, of, the mechanics of shooting are pretty simple mechanics. But doing it every single time so that you can do it when a game comes on and all the other things come into play where things pick up and you're trying to listen to your coach and you're trying to watch the other players and the referee makes a call and you get all tied up and all that other stuff, being able to get back to the simple mechanics and those habits and allowing your body just to take over. 
Stephen Lori Zeller, our guest. The book is available, by the way, at uh, zellerbook.com, also amazon.com, Raising Kids the Zeller Way. The whole foundation of the way you guys have raised your kids comes from that lifestyle that you had out in the country. And talk about how important it was, the Zeller name, to your dad, Joseph, uh, Steve, that everything was about the name. Yeah, dad, dad always said, and that goes back to the pride um, he always commented that there was a lot of people worked hard in talking about our relatives that came before us on being able to build up that name and uh, what that name represents, what that name stands for, and you don't want to be the person to tear it down. And it was pride not just on sports, it was pride on everything we did. And when one of you guys would get in trouble, you would have to wait and confess right at dinner time to dad in front of everybody. And that was like the worst thing ever. It was. You knew several hours ahead of time that um, you were pretty sure that mom told dad, but dad was a man of very few words. And, and going up to that, uh, sitting down at the supper table, and if you can envision, there was a bench on one side with, with three kids on it. And then there was chairs all the way around that table, and we were all elbow to elbow, and mom at one end, dad on the other end, just like the traditional. And dad would pile his plate up and and start eating. We would all pray, and then he would start. We would all start eating, and then you knew right after that it was coming. Confession time. Yeah. All of us, and we still laugh today because we were so brave at saying it the first time. And every single time he would look up and go, "What?" And just like that, you had to repeat it, and you were in tears. You were crying. <laughs> taught us that there was always going to be consequences for the actions we right, had. Right. And uh, I think it was in, that instilled that in us. Now, Joseph was really tough and a, dis- a disciplinarian and, and your mother, but he occasionally would show grace. There was, a, there was a chapter I read in the book where one of your brothers was out, like, he was running the, uh, what machine was it, Steve? The... Uh, Rototiller. The rototiller. He's out there rototiller. You guys are throwing rocks at him. First off, I want to emphasize it wasn't rocks, because that would probably hurt. It was dirt claws. I mean, dirt claws break up. Yeah, they don't but, hurt at all, dirt claws. Oh. All right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we were throwing uh, dirt claws at him, and he was running the rototiller. And, of course, Mom was a – she wanted to make sure everything was perfectly straight when because we were making rows to put the seeds in for the garden. And uh, so we he's were, doing a zigzag, he's doing a serpentine trying to dodge dirt clods out there. And mom turned around and noticed that he was doing that, and she did. She chewed him up one side and down the other. And then, and the word he used was, was the same they used for a female dog. And uh, he, as soon as he said that word, the rototiller died. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, she heard it plain and simple, and you should have seen his eyes. His eyes got real big. <laughs> you could hear a pin drop. Oh. He had to uh, confess in front of everybody at the supper table that night. So what happens? And when he got done, Dad says, well, just don't do that again. And that was the end of it. We all looked at each other like, holy smoke. <laughs> he got away with something there. You thought you were losing a brother. You guys thought this is the end of Ted. This is He's done, right? <laughs> And your dad exactly sort of laughed and showed a little grace and said, don't do that again. Because he thought it was funny that the rototiller died at Ted's worst possible moment ever. 
You know, Stephen, Laura, you move into chapter four, and, it, and that chapter really spoke to me as a parent because I have a, a 12-week-old and I have a three-year-old right now. And you mentioned that it's really vital that your children respect you by the time that they're five years old. You know, we all love our children, and especially at that young age, but they say, oh, you know, my, my three-year-old, my four-year-old runs our household, and um, you're going to regret that when your children there are 15 and they're running your household. I always say your children are going to have friends, but they need parents. Um, and, you know, that's your job to be the parent. There's other people that can be their friends, but you have to be the one that, um, you know, children want those boundaries, whether they um, would admit it or not, but they need those boundaries. They need you to be a parent and to step up and um, and make it a safe place, but also a place where um, that there is discipline in the household. The timeout part, would you have a certain set time that you'd put them there, or was there a spot in the house that you'd make at the timeout spot? Would you do something like that? Yeah, we had a rocking chair that we used for a timeout chair, and, and they'd have to sit in it. Sometimes uh, Lori would end up using a timer. One minute for every year of their age. So, mm-hmm. you know, when Cody was two, he would sit in his little um, rocking chair, timeout chair, for two minutes. And I would always talk to them, you know, before the timeout, but especially afterwards to explain, you know, what the behavior was and that that wasn't allowed. And so it's really important that they know, um, you know, that they understand, especially at a young age, because, um, you know, you don't want them to spend their day in a timeout chair. Um, You know, the purpose of a timeout is to correct the behavior so it doesn't happen again. How do you, with the young kids, then transition in from the, the discipline aspect? And you talk about as they get older, you start building it into where the trust factor. I remember having conversations with the boys when they were, you know, six, seven, eight years old and saying, do you need a spanking for you to stop doing this? Or can you just stop doing it by me telling you to stop doing it? And as the boys now are, are older and they've left home, they said that was one of the best things that I could have done for them because now they bought into it. It wasn't somebody forcing them. They realized that, hey, I could not only avoid a spanking, but I also have dad's respect because he's got enough respect. He's just asking me not to do it, and I don't want to break that respect. And it goes back once again to, and I know it's the, I say the Zeller name, but it goes back to, being able to represent yourself with that type of character. Let's continue, Lori, with Steve's evolution from caveman to fully functioning <laughs> human being. He, he couldn't say, I love you. And it, there was a beautiful, there's a beautiful uh, passage in a book about Christmas, Christmas Eve, 1968, Steve. Dad was a, uh, the, the definitely he-man um, guy of his generation. Um, he was a, a War II veteran. My dad had uh, somewhere south of a sixth-grade education. He was the oldest of six. He had to start working off the farm when he was very young to be able to help his his mom, my grand, his mom and dad, my grandma and grandpa, be able to pay for the other kids. So he didn't show a whole lot of emotion. Everything was just uh, get the thing done and and work was what he knew. And that particular Christmas Eve, after everybody else would uh, go off playing with whatever they got or having conversation, he would get a trash bag and pick up all those wrapping papers. 
he did outside. So that particular Christmas Eve, for some reason, I decided just to go along with him. And we went out behind the garage. And it was one of those winter nights in Iowa where it was uh, below zero, but there was no wind. To me, Lori thinks I'm crazy, but those are the nights I still enjoy, being able to go out there and everything just seems new because of the cold. He, he lit the fire with that one match being raised in the Depression and the type of style that he had. He didn't waste anything. He lit it, and as the fire was going up, I realized I didn't have any gloves on, and so that fire felt good, and I was wishing he would put more paper on. It was kind of a ritual to to slowly build the fire up. But as he was building it up, ended up there was a ash came up out of the burn barrel, and it floated, and it was bright red, um, floated up towards the trees, and you could see it in the branches up above. And uh, as I looked up to watch that go up towards those trees, which had the light on them dancing back and forth, my dad reached down and grabbed my hand and held my hand for a moment. And it was one of those things that, once again, that will always stick with me because he never said I love you, but he had moments like that that he didn't have to say it. I knew he loved me. And then for you as a dad, when Luke went to a Bible study and a friend of his said his biggest regret was, I never told my dad I loved him before he passed on. So he came home as a kid, and before bedtime, he said, I love you. And what was your reaction? I kind of grunted. I grunted. I, uh, I didn't know. It kind of caught me off guard. Um, I just kind of grunted back at him because, you know, my dad didn't have to say I love you, and do I have to say that to him? And it was a, a process to go through. And uh, we actually just had that conversation with the two younger ones, with Tyler and Cody. And they said, well, Dad always says I love you. And Luke says, yeah, I had to teach him. <laughs> but for Steve, he just would not hear that in his um, in his household. And I always remember when he left for college, um, you know, his, his dad shook his hand and gave him $20 and sent him out the driveway and, you know, not an I love you or anything. And, and you know, often I would ask Steve, I'm like, you know, how do you know your parents love you? And he's like, well, I know, by the way, my dad shakes my hand. <laughs> my dad held my hand once in 1968, <laughs> and I'll never forget how soft his calloused hand was that night. I'm telling you, that chapter knocked me out. That story knocked me out. My mom and dad, especially my dad, he did not really say, I love you until like, you know, probably almost like 50, 60 till he's later in life. And now he says it quite a bit. He's now more sentimental. So I wonder like even that generation, Steve, and, um, you know, men growing up to where they, they weren't showing that. So they didn't know how to give it themselves. They believed it was a weakness. Um, mm-hmm. they believed it was a weakness to be able to show that kind of emotion. And, uh, you know, it was, and it's like you said, that was the generation that was there and that was, how they were raised and um, right or wrong, that's how they were raised, but you had to look at other things. And I think the lesson out of that is that people have such a different background and, you know, the world is the way it is because God gave us all these different people with different backgrounds. And when you start judging people by what happened to you, usually you end up in trouble because what happened to you isn't the same upbringing, the same things that they had. So 
with that, I think it helped me to teach me that people aren't all the same. Did you talk about how God redeemed your car rides? On those car rides, after Luke and I came to the revelation, we got to come up with something else to think about. He ended up, uh, we would do scripture, and uh, that was his, his big thing for about three years, where we would just go over scripture, and he would teach me the Bible, which was a big deal for him, because now son is teaching dad. You can learn from your own child. That's a humbling experience. It's humbling, but I guarantee I'm a lot smarter that I listen to my kids rather than thinking I knew it all. Um, you know, the old country song that says, uh, I'm a lot smarter now that I, I realize I don't know it all. It became a big difference. And then on the camps themselves, yeah, Luke, Luke had a dream, two dreams, and the one was to play in the NBA, and the other dream was to start a camp and be able to give back. How did Luke come up with distinction? How'd that come about? Luke went to Notre Dame and um, majored in entrepreneurship, and and um, like Steve had talked about doing the, um, you know, traveling when he was younger, and um, you know, rather than criticizing his play, they would often dream of this basketball camp, and he just wanted a camp that would teach values along with basketball and uh, character training, and so at Notre Dame, he kind of uh, refined that a little bit and did a business plan. And so our camps today, um, it's our family's nonprofit organization, and our camps today are pretty much his homework assignment in action. Stephen Lori Zeller, our guest today, Luke, Tyler, Cody, Raising Boys the Zeller Way. There has never been a story like these three boys, all Mr. Basketball. There's so much to get into. So if you, if you guys are up for it, we'd love to have you back next week. Oh, we would love it. We would be honored. Yeah, we appreciate the time, Lauren and Steve. Take care and God bless. 